Bible speaks of the throne of God frequently. The book of Revelation speaks of the throne of God frequently. It opens and it closes with references to God's throne. As a matter of fact, in in the text that we're going to preach from today in Revelation chapter 4, there are 11 verses and 12 mentions of the throne of God. In Revelation, there are 37 references to this higher throne that you and I have been singing about just now. And so it might be important for us to understand what God is talking about when he talks about the throne. And it would be helpful to us. It'll be an encouragement to us in a powerful way. And you'll see that in just a few minutes. I want to help you this morning by giving you one of my trade secrets. How would you like that? Okay, then I will. Here's the deal. How you can make preaching more interesting. How many of you would like that? Raise your hand. You'd like to make preaching. Why, why did you say that? Yeah. No, how, how to make preaching more interesting. Seriously, in, in our church, we're often, you know where we're, the text that we're going to use to preach from. Like this week, Lord willing, of course, it's Revelation 4, and next week, it's Revelation 5. So you know that. So if you want to make next week's message lots more interesting, truth, and anywhere you're going, find out if you know the text, read the text ahead of time. And here's what you do. There are going to be questions that come to your mind. You're going to think, well, well, who is that? Or like, for instance, in the text today, it talks about 24 elders. It'd be a great thing to say, who are the 24 elders? And they're interesting characters. Who are they? Who are the 24 elders? Uh, in the text today, it's going to say there are four living creatures. And it describes these living creatures in really kind of uh, crazy ways. Anyway, in terms of heaven, when it talks about the four living creatures, that when you read this in a text, it's like, who are the four living creatures? Another question that you might ask if you were reading Revelation 4, you might say, why is this here? Why did God say, I want the churches to read about this? Why is this here? These would just be a few questions. If you had a journal... And whenever you read the Bible, you wrote questions in your journal. You wouldn't even have to answer the questions right away. What would make preaching and teaching and Christian songs and Christian radio so much more fascinating. So that's just my little free gift to you today. If you want any preacher to be more interesting, then read the text ahead of time and write down questions. And even when you're reading your Bible and it's unrelated to what the pastor's going to, or you think it might be unrelated to what the pastor's going to talk about on Sunday, if you write down questions when you're reading your Bible, it's amazing how often Bible teachers in the Sunday school hour, in the ABF classes, in the small groups, or in the preaching, or on when you're listening to Christian radio or podcasts, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit will often help you get the answers to the questions that your heart has kind of been longing for. Now, today we take a trip to heaven, which is amazing because in Christian literature today, in like popular evangelical Christian literature, you know what the big and the most, the big money-making genre, if you want to make, I'm going to be a little cynical here, if you want to make a lot of money in Christian publishing, then you would publish a, a book that tells about your trip to heaven. Because the the numbers don't lie. Books about people going to heaven, written from a human point of view about people that died and went to heaven and came back, they sell like hotcakes. People make a lot of money on books like that. And they have interesting and fanciful kinds of descriptions about what heaven can be like. And you might ask the question, well, pastor, are they accurate? I would never want to speak for the accuracy of those books. But I will tell you this. The Bible does describe heaven to us. 
It describes the central part of heaven to us. And it does it in a number of different places. And it's amazing how similar those descriptions are. And what God wants us to know about heaven is really repeated. And the most complete um, picture if you, or description that we have in the Bible about heaven is the text that we're going to read today. It's actually Revelation 4 and 5. It's the most complete description. And if you compare Revelation 4 and 5 to Paul's vision of heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, to Ezekiel's vision of heaven in Ezekiel chapter 1, especially verses 26 to 28, in Isaiah's vision of heaven, especially in Isaiah 6, in Micaiah's vision of heaven that he refers to in 1 Corinthians 22. You're writing all those down. 1 Kings 22. Um, and Daniel's vision of heaven in Daniel 7. I'm saying all that to say this. Whenever somebody in the Bible talks about heaven, there are things that are similar they talk about. God reveals these similar things about heaven. He wants us to know them. They're practically important to us. They're important to us. In other words, God tells us something over and over again. We might want to kind of put it in our little mental notebooks because we're going to find out that in this ugly, evil, fallen, broken, difficult, painful world that we live in, we're going to want to have an idea about these ultimate things. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, you have an outline of the book. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And most scholars, Bible scholars will tell you there's an outline of Revelation. Things that happened in the past, the things which are happening now, that is contemporary with the author then, the, the letters to the seven churches. And then we're at this point in Revelation 4, it starts talking about things which are going to be future. And, and there are some people who don't believe they're future. I'll tell you why I believe they are future. And I think it's kind of easy to show that they're future. And that is you take your Bible and you read Revelation 4, 5, 6, go through, say, 18 or 19, read the rest. And you answer this question, have these things happened yet? And your answer is going to be, no. The things that are described are so catastrophic, they're so worldwide, they're so cataclysmic, they're so obvious that if they had happened, we would know it. The things have not happened yet, so they're still future. So do you realize that should make the hair on the back of your neck stand up to recognize that we're about to go into a portion of the Bible that's actually talking about stuff that's going to happen in the future, just as sure as the stuff that happened before happened, the stuff that's going to happen in the future will happen. Like, like prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled, the prophecies of the New Testament are going to be fulfilled in the future. So we know it's future because it ha hasn't happened yet. Now, the picture is a picture of heaven in Revelation 4. We're going to read this in just a minute. But understand that the Bible refers to heaven over 500 times. Now, note, please, there's a door that's standing open in heaven. We're going to see that. And heaven is going to be described as the abode of God. If you, if you look in the book of Acts, and this is the one place that I will have you turn. If you're quick at turning, you can get to the book of Acts and chapter 1. Then what you see is when Jesus Christ ascended, he ascended into heaven. The dwelling place, the abode of God. And this is in while they look steadily. This is the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1 and verse 10. While they look steadily, steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up and behold, two men stood by in white apparel who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Where did Jesus go when he ascended? Obviously, he went to heaven. Heaven is the abode of God. Look in Acts chapter 3 
and verse 21. Acts 3, 21 says, When whom, speaking Christ, preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets. Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 7 and verse 55. I said you'd only have to turn once, but I meant once to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7 and verse 54 says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. This is Stephen now, right? But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens are open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And and so we could go on and on through the New Testament and point out that heaven is the abode of God. This is the picture that we're going to get in Revelation chapter 4. And, and this is important. You think, well, why is this important to me? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons why it's important to you. Jesus said this very clearly to his disciples in John. It's recorded in the book of John. I go to prepare a place for you in heaven. So heaven, for believers, is going to be your ultimate home. That's kind of important. Remember my little story a few weeks ago? Why we don't decorate the Motel 6 when we rent it for a couple of days? Because we're not going to be here that long, Right? All the smart rats understood that story. Yeah, right? So it is. In Revelation says your ultimate and eternal home forever and ever is going to be in the abode of God in heaven. So people that love God, they like to hear talks about heaven. They like to read books about heaven. They want to know about heaven. And the more that we realize that our world that we live in is so broken and so fallen, the more, the longer we live, the more our loved ones go to heaven who knew the Lord. I went down there and hugged Lois. So she leaned over to me and she says, I got to go to Kentucky today because my great aunt died. Her great aunt Reva died and she went to heaven. She was a believer. And the longer we live, the more of our loved ones are in heaven. I had a talk that I didn't want to have with my dad this week. And he says, you know, I'm going to go. And when I am, you're going to be the oldest. I'm like, well, thank you for sharing that little tidbit with me. Because that sure made my day. Eventually what happens is you sit and watch the family circle get smaller. And our loved ones go to be with the Lord in heaven. And heaven is precious to us because they're there. So do you want to know about heaven? That's the amen part right there. You missed it. Yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. So let's read the Bible about heaven instead of me just yammering on and on about it. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 is the vision of John as he's called in the spirit up to heaven. And after these things I looked. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one who sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance like an emerald, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face like a man, the fourth living creature was like 
a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they exist and were created. You can say, wow, right now, if you want to, wow, it was an amazing passage. And it kind of culminates in this one on the throne is the creator. Did you ever wonder when you look up in the night sky, who made all of that? Did you ever wonder when you hold a little baby and you look at their beautiful little face, who made that? Did you ever wonder when you sit and your table is just like laden with food, who created all of that? All of that food, who did that? Every human being on earth has had that thought. And the answer to that question is in this book right here. God is the creator of everything. He's preparing a place for us in heaven. He's in heaven. There's a door open there. John is called up to heaven in the spirit. He sees this open door. He sees this stunning vision. It's a vision of Christ. Jesus speaks to him in a voice that's arresting like a trumpet, like he did earlier in chapter 1 and verse 10. In verse 2, there's one who sat on the throne. Again, the throne is mentioned 12 times in 11 verses, 37 times in Revelation. Revelation opens in chapter 1 and verse 4 and closes in chapter 22 and verse 3 with references to the throne. So this is a central thing. It's not just central to the book. It's like central to the universe. It's actually central to your life. If you want to order your life, you might keep in mind, where is the control center of the universe? That's the title of my message today. The control center of the universe. It's the throne of God. And so there's a colorful and amazing appearance in heaven, a jasper and sardis and rainbow and emerald. And this is really consistent when you get a glimpse into heaven that there's just unspeakable, indescribable kind of beauty to the one who sits on the throne and, to, and, the, and that. And, and Revelation is an example of that. And then in verse 4, the scriptures say there are 24 elders around the throne. And they are on thrones. They have a, they're, they're co-regents, if you will, or they're subordinate rulers. So you have the ruler on the throne, and then you have these others on thrones, and they have golden crowns. And the crown here isn't the diadem crown, like the crown that a royalty would wear, but it's the Stephanos crown. It's the crown that the runner wins. It's the victor's crown. Does that sound familiar? Over and over again, when you get to the end of each of the chap, the, the, the letters to the churches, in every single one of the letters of the churches, and it says, if you get the victor's crown, if you achieve the victory, then these are the rewards that you're going to have. And now it's talking about those who have received these rewards and they have these crowns, these victor's crowns. And the Bible says they're not just wreaths like laurel wreaths, like would be the victor's crown. They're actually gold wreaths. They're golden crowns, victor's crowns. And these elders have them on their heads. As it says there in verse 4, around the throne are 24 thrones. The thrones I saw are 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. That's interesting. So the question pops in your mind. So who are these 
24 elders. There is disagreement about this, some discussion about this, a bit of theological arm wrestling about this. I have a theory I want to defend here today, and it would be good for you to talk this over and think this over. I believe this is one of the many clues that the Bible gives us that the, that the mystery of the rapture of the church happens before the tribulation. In other words, one question that you ought to have when you read Revelation is when you get to chapter 4 and 5, especially when you get to chapter 6, and it starts to describe the judgments that are poured out on the earth from God, which we often call the tribulation or the great tribulation, wouldn't it be interesting to know, is the church on earth during that time or are believers on earth during that time? Are they suffering through that great tribulation? Or are they in heaven at that time and they're not going through the great tribulation? I think that's a pretty germane question, wouldn't you say? And so we have little hints because the Bible isn't, in this, in this passage, isn't direct. It doesn't have a direct statement of that. It's like the church is present in chapters 2 and 3 and it's referred to over and over and over again. And the church is not referred to in chapter 4, 5, 6, all the way through 18. It's not even referred to once. There's a special terminology that Christians, that the church uses for God. Jesus told us to call him Father. And that terminology is used early in Revelation, but it's not being used in Revelation 4 through 18. The church terminology isn't there. The church symbolism isn't there. This is just one of the reasons why I believe, personally, that these elders represent the church, and they're not on earth, but they're in heaven. But let me give you five other quick reasons. First of all, they reign. Some would say, well, maybe they're angels, but angels don't reign. But the Bible says that believers in their glorified state will reign, and they have reign. Some would say, well, maybe they're angels, but angels are never called presbyteros. They're never called elders. These are called elders, which is a unique a term that would be unique from, from angels. A third reason is that it says that they're dressed in white. Now, angels can have the appearance of white, but they're not given right to the, the symbolic white clothing, raiment, says believers are said to have them. Here's another one, and this is one that I think is significant. Angels are never said to have been crowned, but believers are going to be crowned. There are at least five references in the New Testament that talk about crowns for believers. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about those like tonight, but uh, for those of you that come to the evening, but, but there, there are at least five references of things that God says he will crown people for. Believers get crowns, and these Elders have crowns. Later on, they're going to take their crowns and cast them at the feet of the one who's on the throne. And if you go forward, there are five hymns. We'll talk about that in a minute. A couple of them are in chapter 4. You'll see that in one of the hymns, in this early in the hymn, is based on that God is the creator. But later, it's based on God as the redeemer. And the elders are singing about redemption. Because Christians, I believe that Christians, everybody loves to sing about redemptions. The angels are interested in redemption. The Bible says they love to look into those things. But you and I, the subjects of redemption, he bought us out of the slave market. If you really are conscious when you get to heaven that you have been purchased out of a slave market of sin, it'll make you want to sing. Am I right? It'll make you want to weep. Greg and I were back there in the baptismal preparation room. And he blessed my heart today because when he got baptized, he went down the steps and he began to weep. And when I got down there, he was just weeping, joyful tears. Happy, am I right? Happy, this is so good, he said. This is so good. And I thought to myself when he was doing that, that's the way it is. Whenever I have obeyed the Lord, when I strayed away from the Lord and disobeyed him, it hasn't been happy for me. But whenever I've just taken a little baby step of obedience to the Lord, 
He fills my heart with such joy. Amen? That's the way it is. And then one day we step into glory and we'll go, this is true, this is right, all that I believed is true. Can you imagine the tremendous burst of joy that we're going to have when we're with the Lord? Won't it make us want to sing? And they were singing a song of redemption. It says in chapter 5, the song of redemption. And then in chapter 5, something interesting happens. It gives us a hint about what's about to happen in Revelation. If you read ahead, you know that something really terrible is going to happen. God's wrath in judgment, his righteous judgment, is going to be poured out on the earth in waves, in terrible waves. It's just what the Bible says. If you have the idea that the God of the Old Testament was wrathful and the God of the New Testament is just kind of toothless and, and that we don't need to fear him and we don't need to obey him, and then you didn't read the Bible carefully because in here you see that Jesus is pouring out just wrath on the earth in waves. And that's why it says there in chapter 4 and verse 5, there's a reference here that's, that's kind of a hint of judgment. It's more than a hint of judgment. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And if you remember our teaching on this before and our references of the Old Testament, it's a way of referring to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God God on the throne is thundering, lightning, preparing judgment for those who have rejected him that are on the earth. And then you have this, this it even gets more interesting in verse 6, the four living creatures, or maybe more accurately, the four living ones. And they, and they sing the first of the five hymns that are recorded in chapters 4 and 5. This passage introduces uh, to us in Revelation these living creatures, these living ones. But it's not the only place in the Bible that talks about them. And it's not the only place in Revelation that talks about them. It's going to talk about these living creatures frequently in Revelation. They have a key role in the events of Revelation. And to find out who they are, one of the things you can do is you can compare Ezekiel and Isaiah's visions of heaven and the living creatures. And you'll see that these are angels or they're cherubim. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel 10, 15 actually says they're cherubim, which is a high rank of angels. So they're an exalted order of angels. And they're to symbolize the whole created world. I believe this is what's saying here is, uh, is their, their uh, vigilance, their eyes, and the different creatures. It's like the emphasis here is, think about this, liter- in a literary way, you can tell the emphasis is on a throne and the center is the throne. And a secondary emphasis then is that everything that's created is looking at the throne, is bowing before the throne, is worshiping the one on the throne. And what the passage is symbolically teaching is that every created thing worships the one on the throne. This is the control center of the universe. This is the worship center of the universe. And these four living creatures, you can study a lot more of them. In Isaiah, it says they have six, six wings. It's here. And, and it says what they do with their wings in Isaiah. With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they fly. It's like four of the six are representative of worship. The issue, the, the emphasis here is on worship. And then what do they do? It says there in verse uh, 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings full of eyes around and within. They don't rest day or night, but they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, when I was at Moody Bible Institute, one of the greatest experiences that I had at Moody was to sing in what they called oratorio chorus. I love this thing. 
And so this is sort of the most majestic and beautiful. It's Handel's Messiah that sings the story of the oratorio, the story of Jesus. So there are a number of different arias and choruses that go back and forth. It's almost like at some point they answer one another. And so when we, we practice and we practice, we practice these beautiful, just historic, gorgeous songs that exalt Jesus that come directly out of the scriptures. And we would sing. But then when we got all together, there would be those that would be in a chorus here and a huge chorus of 250 voices. And then in front, there would be those who sang the arias, the singers. And then in front of that, there would be a, a big pit which had the orchestra in it. And there was, I don't know if I've ever done anything more thrilling than to just sing those songs that exalted Christ. At some point, there's kind of an answering back. It's like you sing and there's an antiphonal. Somebody sings and answers back. That was in Chicago, Moody Bible Institute, which is pretty much small potatoes when you compare it to the throne room of God, angels, myriads, thousands of redeemed saints and angels that are singing back and forth to one another. It's like when they sing, you answer back in song and then you just look around for something to worship. And when you take the crown off your head and you take that valuable crown that you won and you throw it at his feet and you fall on your face and you worship him and you say, you are holy, you are worthy and you're worthy because you're the one that created everything I see. That's what it's like in the control room of the whole universe. And that's what it ought to be like in the heart of every believer. The response of the elders was worship in these five great hymns of praise. And they say, you are worthy, O Lord, verse 11, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Why did the Spirit inspire John to write this description of heaven to the churches. This is a question that we should always ask ourselves. Why is this here? Let's be honest. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it doesn't look relevant. It looks history. It looks like history. And it can kind of be off-putting unless you're a big history buff. Sometimes it kind of seems like coded to us. Like, well, what's that mean? What's all that about? You know, the Bible really yields its treasures, not to triflers, but to people who reverently seek the treasures of the Bible. But the common man who seeks the treasures of the Bible can have the very needs of his heart met by studying the Bible. And by asking the question, why? Why is this here? Why did God want us to have this? Specifically, why did God want John to give this message to those churches? Listen, if you answer that question, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. Then the Bible starts to come into color. It comes to life. Because it's not far from there to answering the question. The first question is, why did God have the original author write that to the original audience? Always remember, that's a, that's a key question. Because it's not far from there to, why did God preserve, why did the Holy Spirit preserve that message for Evangel Baptist Church, for my heart and for my family Now, let's answer those questions before we go home. Why? And maybe the best way that I can answer this is this way. Why did the Spirit inspire John to write this description? Well, remember, they were an oppressed bunch of people. The Domitian was ruling and demanding worship and calling himself worthy. And he had a throne and he was oppressing others. And they were under this boot of oppression and they got, they got, they were oppressed by the Roman government. They were oppressed by the local Jewish groups. As, you, as we studied through the first letters of the seven churches, that's just the one thing that characterized all the groups is they were suffering. They were going through hardship. They're going through difficulty. Wouldn't it be common for a person suffering to say, God, where are you? Where are you today, God? I'm suffering right now. Where are you? 
And if the Bible, the God of the Bible is all powerful and good and benevolent, isn't it natural for a person to say, God, where are you? And God, what are you doing? Where are you, God? What are you doing? And God, what, what do you want me to do? These are questions that would naturally come out of our hearts. I heard recently, you did too, of the beautiful pastor's wife, a pastor's daughter and a pastor's wife, as radiant Christian girl, just an outstanding girl. She had a little baby and she's pregnant with another little baby, living in Indianapolis. And her husband went off to, a pastor, went off to work out in the gym. Somebody broke into her house and horribly abused her and horribly beat her and killed her. And when that story came to our house, one of my daughters said, Dad, why didn't God stop that? That's a good question to ask God. God, where were you when that girl got hurt like that? Where were you? And what were you doing? This text answers all three of those questions. Where were you, God? What were you doing? And what do you want us to do? First question is answered like this. Where is God? He's in control of the universe. God is on the throne of the universe. And what is he doing? You say, well, God, look at all this oppression. Look at all this darkness. Look at all these unjust things. Look at the people who have mistreated me. Look at the things that are happening. And you, they say you're all powerful. Why are you stopping this? What is God doing? He's preparing to reward believers and judge unbelievers. He's going to give crowns of rewards and a place in heaven to those who are faithful to him. He's going to compensate them for their suffering forever and forever and forever. And the question that just so breaks our heart right now, we will no longer ask when we stand in the throne room of heaven. And for those that are going to willfully and rebelliously, selfishly resist God, he will come to judge them. And when he judges them, it will be very thorough Believers aren't supposed to desire that judgment to fall on their enemies. Believers are supposed to pray that God will bring them to himself in mercy so that they won't have to face the judgment of God. That's really our job right now, but that is our secondary job. Our primary job is this. It's the answer to the third question. Question number one, where is God? Answer, he's on the throne. Question number two, what's he doing? Answer, he's preparing a place for us. He's preparing to reward believers and he's preparing to judge unbelievers. And that's a pretty serious thing to know. And what are we supposed to do? Like every living creature, we are to take our crowns and cast them at his feet and worship him. We're to be preoccupied with the worship of the living God because he's the one who created us. Later we'll sing because he redeemed us, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. We're to worship him because he's the one who made everything. He's God. Our questions are reverent questions. And he's the one who gives the answers. What do we do? We worship We seek God. And how do we endure? We endure by getting a vision. That's how the people in the churches in Revelation endured. Because they had this vision that was given to them through Jesus, to the angels, to John, to the churches. So that they could endure the persecution they were under. So we can endure whatever we have to endure. If we have a clear picture of what that God is on his throne. That he's preparing to reward and that he's preparing to judge. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are conscious of the throne of God and of the rule of God. I pray, Lord, that those that are suffering today, that are just going through hardship, they're struggling, battling cancer, or they have a loved one who's battling cancer or some illness, that you would help them have a picture of the rewards that you're preparing for them 
as they finish faithful. I pray, Lord, for those that have uh, struggling with besetting sins, all of us, Lord, as we struggle with our besetting sins, and as, Lord, we sometimes we lose sight of the throne of God, of the white-hot judgment of God, of the rewards of God, that you would remind us this week, even though other people may stumble us, and even though other people may hurt us, and even though other people may be a bad example to us, and they may influence us, God, you are on the throne, and we're going to answer to you, so help us to see that. Help me to see that every day in every way, that the vision of the throne of God would be very clear to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.